Good morning, Southern Hills. I'm fake Jared Robinson. Real Jared Robinson is in Portland, Oregon. I don't know if he went up there to join the rioting. Uh, He may have gone there because it's going to be 86 there today. It's going to be 101 here. It's possibly went that's because his family lives there, but I kind of doubt it. But that's where Jared is today. Um, When I was growing up, there was a church in my hometown, and a staff member would get up at the first of the service. He did this every week for years. And he would stand up, and he would go to the podium, and he would look out at the crowd, and he would say, I can honestly say, I have never seen you looking better. So, let me give a variation on that. I can honestly say, I have never seen you looking weirder. (laughs) You just look different and strange. And you know, that's kind of the way it's been. Uh, I can't think of much that's happened in 2020 that hasn't been a little bit off. Stephen was talking about all of the things, the riots and the government stuff and the pandemic, and now we have hurricanes, and probably the locusts and the frogs are coming soon. We don't know. It's been a very, very strange year. But enough about the world's problems. Let me talk to you about me about the trauma that I've endured because of all of this. It started, well, let me show you. This is kind of me in the early days of the pandemic. I mean, I've got my gas mask, I've got my gun, and I've got my toilet paper. And I'm going to just sit there in my living room and ride the thing out. I don't know when this all started to feel real to you or super weird to you. It was for me, it was at HEB. When you walk in and the entire aisle of of personal paper is empty, and every person I pass has this kind of mission look on their face, like, I'm on a job here, I'm going to get my stuff, and I'm not going to talk to anybody, and I'm like, this is super freaky. I mean, it's when we we had communion at our house one Sunday, and we had, um, for the bread, we had pizza crust, and for the fruit of the vine, we had grapes, which are fruit of the vine, right? I mean, some of you are like me. It's like, you know, I've got to go to another Zoom meeting this afternoon. Do I really have to wear pants? Nah, I didn't wear it to the last one. Nobody said anything. Now, none of you want to have a Zoom meeting with me, do you? (laughs) Or you call your parents to check in on them, and it doesn't help because you say, well, you know, what have you done this week? Well, We went to Walmart, they put the groceries in the trunk, and we came home. And that's the end of the phone call. And you call the next week, well, we cut each other's hair. Now we're too embarrassed to go to Walmart. (laughs) You know, it just rocks on and on and on. So, to try to help us make some sense of all this, because I'm not convinced that everybody has the same experience with the virus that I'm having, I have devised to explain this, what I call the COVID-19 misery index. All right? Very simple scale here. This is the kind of thing professors get really excited about building is scales. By the way, this one is copyright 2020 by fake Jared Robinson. And I look at this and I say to you, I'd like you to figure out where in the scale you are. And it's very simple. Um, Ideally, you're down there at one. Um, If you're at one on the scale, this is kind of what you've experienced. Minor changes in your job. Some of your favorite attractions are shut down. You're having to wear a mask. You're having to social distance. 
Okay? That's you. That's one. Two, you've had major changes in your work, in your family routine. Maybe you've had some minor health impacts on yourself or a family member, or maybe a minor reduction in your income. That's two. Three, you've had a major health impact on yourself or a family member. Someone's been hospitalized. You've had a threat to your housing, perhaps the chance to lose your housing, a major drop in income, a change in a wedding, or another major family event. Your life's been disrupted. And four, inadequate food, loss of housing, loss of income, death of a family member or a close friend. And you can find yourself somewhere on the scale. I look at this thing and I think through it. I haven't gotten the virus. No one in my family's gotten the virus. I live in a city that's largely been spared from this. Abilene's done really pretty okay in comparison to a lot of other places. When unemployment just went through the roof, my checks just kept coming. I mean, I've had to start social distancing, but those of you that know me know I've been social distancing all my life. I mean, I've got this. I'm almost happier when I'm socially distanced. I mean, this really, it's, a, it's been pretty inconvenient and unpleasant and freaky, but my life has kind of rolled on, and I know that's not the case for a lot of people. And that's what I want to talk about today, about how you deal with the rest of the world and the people around you when things are not going well for them. There's a man by the name of Ignatius. He was a a Spanish priest back in the 1500s, and he devoted his life to answering the question, um, what is holiness and basically how do we live a holy life? And in working on that, he wound up coming around and spending some time wrestling with this question. What is the deadliest sin? Or as he liked to think of it, what is the source, the one sin that's the source of all the others? Which is an interesting question. And I'll give you a hint. This is what he called it. The cause, the beginning, and the origin of all evils and sins. So Ignatius is saying, if this thing is in your life, it's just going to grow from there. Now, think about it for a second before I tell you what he said. What would you say is the source, the place that sin begins in you before it expands and begins to take you over? And when I think about, to me, the deadliest of the sins, I think about things like greed, arrogance, uh, hatred. I don't know. Ignatius said, the source of all these things is ingratitude. Because he said, if in your heart you are ungrateful to God for what he has done for you, that's the beginning. You're going to go off into everything else that's possible. Every way you can become depraved, you will. Ignatius argued that if you understand what God did for you, if you get the sacrifice that God made for you, You will devote your life to serving him. You will seek him. You will work to become holy, to become like him, because you will will just get it. Wow, God did so much for me. So I have been trying to frame my attitude this year in a way that helps me practice more gratitude. And I've been trying to recognize that even as my life with some bumps in the road, kind of rocks on. For a lot of people, it's not like that. 
There's a whole lot more going on in their lives. For example, the pain of this thing is not evenly distributed by any means. The people who have lost their jobs and are in danger of losing their homes and are having trouble eating, they are disproportionately people who are um, migrants to this country instead of people who were born here. They are disproportionately people without college degrees instead of people who have degrees. They are disproportionately women rather than men. By the way, um, if you're a young adult in the United States and you had a job six months ago, odds are one in four that today you're unemployed. I mean, these are people just starting their careers and in some cases still paying student loans and now they're unemployed and that's the direction that it's going. Harry Truman said it this way. He said, when your neighbor loses his job, that's a recession. When you lose your job, that's a depression. I don't worry about that. But a lot of our fellow Americans, and in fact, a lot of our, our fellow human beings around the world get up every day and wonder, am I going to go and find out I don't have a job today? We have a lot of reasons to be grateful right now. Let me take that back. I have a lot of reasons to be grateful right now. I assume most of you do too, but I, I don't know. 2 Timothy 3 is kind of this laundry list of what he says is going to happen in the last days. And I'm not saying this is the last days. But he talks about how the world is going to become just almost totally depraved. And he talks about the behaviors of people and the things they will do and the way that they will, will behave that is totally contrary to what God wants. And at the end of the passage, he just sums up the list by saying, have nothing to do with these types of people. And right in the middle of that list is the ungrateful. People who just don't get how much they have got. Ignatius would say if we view God and his provision in this way, basically what we're saying is, God, what you have given me is not enough. What you have given me is not enough. I'm dissatisfied, God. Why didn't I get more? Why didn't I get something different? Why didn't I get what I wanted? 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This year definitely qualifies as all circumstances. This is the strangest year I can remember. It qualifies. Give thanks in all circumstances. Let me tell you a story. You've heard about the temple in Jerusalem. It was the center of the Jewish nation. It was the center of their culture. It was the center of their religion. There were actually two temples the first one was built by Solomon. It's the one we read about in the Old Testament where they, they got in these incredible amounts of gold and silver and fine fabric, and they built this thing over the course of a couple of decades, and it stood for 450 years. And then they were invaded. Everything inside was taken. The building was destroyed. The people were carried off into bondage, okay, kind of just the way it went for Israel. And they get there, and they are in bondage for 50 years. And finally, through a series of strange events, they are set free. And they come back. And they're trying to, as I keep hearing us say, get back to normal. 
Let's get back to normal. And so they're there, and they begin, uh, they begin making plans. And they say, one of the things we have to do is rebuild the temple, because the temple is the focal point of who we are as a people. And so they get together, and they make plans, and the day comes when they lay down the first stones of the foundation of the temple. And all the people are there to witness it. And this is the reaction. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the people sang, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise. And it's like the celebration to end all celebrations. It's this amazing day because they've looked forward to it literally for decades. And they're finally home. And they're going to have a temple again. And they're going to become a nation again. But there's something strange happening because this is not the only reaction. But many of the older people who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. So you have two groups within the nation there. You have the people who are under 50 who were literally born in bondage. They've never seen the old temple. They've lived their entire lives about it. They've heard their entire lives how awesome it's going to be when God finally delivers us and takes us back to Jerusalem, and we're going to build the temple, and we're going to be a nation again, and it's going to be the best of times. And the folks under 50, that's what they've been looking forward to. And they are cheering, and they are screaming, and they are ecstatic. And then you've got some of the people who are over 50 who remember the old temple. Remember, the old temple was built in a time of incredible prosperity for the Jews. They collected materials for it for years. It was this unbelievable structure. And I think probably people realized, you know, the one we're building now, it's not going to be quite like that. Now, we know over the years it, it became incredible. It was, it was grown. It was added on to. This is the place Jesus goes with his followers, and they keep coming to him saying, Master, do you see all these buildings? But in this moment, the people who are over 50 can't really wrap their hearts around this new place because somehow it's not as good. It's inferior to what they remember, and it just reminds them of how much they have lost. And I think the reason that it was so hard for them is this. Gazing back at your past steals your present. Gazing back at your past steals your present. This is, this is literally probably one of the best days of their entire lives. And they can't enjoy it. They can't celebrate it. It's really easy right now. It's really easy to say, you know, Things are okay, but man, wasn't it better back in February? Wasn't it great when I didn't have to wear this mask everywhere I went? When all the places I like to go eat were still open? It was so much better back then. Yeah, probably was. We don't get yesterday. We get today. And all the time we spend looking back keeps us from living now. And a couple of years ago, I came across what someone described as a mantra for modern times. It's one of those things you tell yourself when things aren't going exactly like you want them to go. And it's very simple. It's this. 
Right now, this is how things are. I mean, even before COVID hit, this resonated with me because there are days when I have to tell myself that, and there are seasons of life where I have to tell myself that. Right now, this is how this is. And it tells me a couple of things. Number one, it says to me, you can live in whatever dream world you want, but this is reality. This is where life is actually going to happen if you would like to play the game. And number two, it tells me nothing in this life is permanent. Nothing is permanent. And that is not just the bad things, that's the good things as well. I mean, that's good to remember when you're on top because nothing lasts forever. Right now, this is how it is. And I think one of the problems for us in this is the virus has reminded us on kind of an uncomfortable level, we're not really in control. I mean, we go to incredible lengths to make sure our lives are structured and safe, and we buy things and we buy insurance for them in case something happens to them, and we schedule things in a certain way, and we structure it just how we want, and we get the feeling that we're running the show. And that is a really... It's a really appealing thing. I like the idea that I'm running the show. And it's become pretty obvious since about March that I'm just along for the ride, that the show is kind of running itself. Right now, this is how it is. This too will pass. So let me close with maybe some good news and some bad news. You know, I don't know when the last time was that the Southern Hills Church had a chance to help over a thousand people from the community in the space of a week. I was trying to think back, uh, those of you that were here in 2005, when Katrina destroyed New Orleans, I mean, literally within 24 hours, we were making plans. Uh, Within a week, I think we had shipped some supplies down there, and we spent two years helping a church in New Orleans rebuild and partnering with them as they tried to get back to normal. I don't remember another time that we've been able to to touch that many lives in that short a period. There may have been one. The thing that's funny to me is when we think about church and about reaching people and impacting them, I think our tendency is to think programs or slogans, or initiatives, where we kind of go out and convince people to come to us. I don't think we had to do a lot of convincing last week or the week before. We had, what, 1,300 people the first week, another 800 this last week. They came here on their own, and we were Jesus to them right here in our parking lot. And they didn't come because of a program or because of a slogan, or because of any kind of initiative that we made, they came because they were hungry. In Abilene, Texas, in the United States of America, in the 21st century, people coming here for food. Told you we don't know what's happening next. I suspect this will get worse before it gets better. 
I think people who have lost their income have burned through at this point most of the savings that they have. Their jobs, in many cases, are not coming back anytime soon. I think it gets worse for a lot of people before it gets better. I think people that are at two on the misery index go to three. People that are at three go to four. People that are at four go bankrupt and become homeless. That's the world of 2020. And that's the bad news. And the good news is never in my life do I remember a chance for the body of Christ to impact people in our community, literally in our neighborhood, on such a scale. I think this is where we decide who we are. I think this is where we decide what kind of body of believers we are. It's happening here, and it's happening now, and we get to choose. James 2, it's a whole chapter about doing your faith, right? About living your faith, not just saying what you believe or professing it or anything like that. And he asked this question, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Now, for a long time, I didn't think of myself as that guy. That guy is, I don't know, he's either oblivious or totally selfish or he's just, you know, he's fooling himself. I mean, I always pictured the guy who literally sits at his table and eats this big meal and outside his door is the guy who doesn't have any food at all. And and then it's somehow worse that instead of just walking by and ignoring him, he looks at him and says, you know, I hope you have a great day and get some great food today and keeps walking. And then it occurred to me that sometimes when I pray to God, I sound a bit like that guy. Because if I'm not careful, my prayers are very, very much about me. And I think I've done okay in a sense because I think I've gotten fairly good at recognizing the things that I have and thanking God for those things. But I'm worried that if my prayer life with God consists of, God, thank you for my home, thank you for my spouse, thank you for my job, Thank you for the experiences that I get to have. Please be with all the people who don't have those things. Amen. I sound kind of like the guy in the story. God, do something for those people. Thanks. And I don't want to be that guy. So to close, I want us to pray. I'm going to, to pray this in a way that I've been trying to pray more lately. It still doesn't come very naturally for me to do this. I don't want to be a person that says, I follow Jesus and ignores the real physical needs of the world around me because I don't think those two things can exist in the same person. Pray with me if you would.
Father, thank you so much that we have food at our house and good food that we like and good food that we're able to choose. And Father, we know today there are people in our country, in our community who would like to choose just to have food. Father, thank you that everyone in our house is healthy. Father, we pray for the people who are not, who are struggling with illness, with death, who have lost family members in this thing that has just not really even touched our house. Father, thank you that I have a job, a comfortable job with paycheck. And I don't wake up in the morning and wonder, will I get laid off today? And Father, please, Father, help the people who don't have jobs right now. On top of everything else, they don't have jobs. Father, thank you for the friends that you give us. We know there are people whose lives are lonely. We pray, Father, for them. Father, thank you for the hope that you give us. And we know especially now there are people who are hopeless. And Father, beyond asking you to be with these people, I pray that you will empower us to be your hands and your mouth and your feet to not just recognize the needs, which is a great start, but to do something, to meet the need, even when it is inconvenient or unpleasant. Father, forgive us when we are the oblivious guy who tosses encouraging slogans at people whose lives are in ruins. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to serve in the name of your Son, our hope, and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.